This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, lots of news out of NBAA. And the NTSB is using drones for their investigations. Also, Signature finally on the transparency bandwagon. And let's talk a little bit about the BizJet forecast. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tillis. David, you caught up with our, you're doing all the heavy lifting recently. You caught up with our guest this week, Justin Seams. He's a corporate pilot and podcaster. That's right, Ian. Justin and I had a really good chat a while ago. He does host the Pilot to Pilot podcast, where he's interviewed some of the same guests that we've had. We walk in the same realms of aviation a little bit, but he is a corporate pilot and he had some great information on how to get started in aviation if you want to be a career pilot. Okay, cool. So we'll catch that a little later on. But uh, let's go backwards a little bit in time to NBAA. This is the big business aviation show of the year. And the realm, I think from big stuff to small stuff, at least small stuff for them, uh, was kind of covered at the show. So we're going to talk about just a couple of cool things. Let's start with Pilatus. What do you think? Well, I think Pilatus had an incremental increase for their PC-12 aircraft. It's now called the NGX, the cruise speed increased slightly to 290 knots from 285. But Ian, the big news there were auto throttles and some other capabilities for that aircraft. And you and I were talking about this before the show. It comes in at $4.4 million to $5.5 million. Oh, yeah. So not cheap if you want to pull out us. So those of us without that sort of checkbook, you know, we can dream a little bit. Uh, it is just a, such a cool aircraft. Sticking with the Honeywell Epic Avionics platform, They've added some stuff over the years. They, they're calling it now the Advanced Cockpit Environment, which will have emergency descent mode, envelope protection, you know, stuff that you can see on the G1000 and, and up on the Garmin line. Uh, lots of other kind of cool stuff there. So that's good that they're seeing a panel update. And they're looking at, uh, what is it? I think end of the year, maybe uh, first certified in Europe and then uh, probably soon after that for FAA. That's right. And the PC-12 NGX, and you can spot one of these on the ramp because of the cabin windows. They're larger than the previous PC-12s. And, uh, you know, a single-engine turboprop seems to be a pretty efficient way of getting around. It seems to be, you know, very, very popular with folks who can afford that kind of aircraft. Yeah, absolutely. So Technum now, now they didn't make a huge splash at the show necessarily, but we haven't talked about them in a while with this P-2012S. This is their kind of people hauler that they developed in concert with Cape Air. But uh, we want to just kind of give it a quick update on it because it is really a pretty fascinating project. That's right, Ian. And so the regional airline placed an order for 100 of these aircraft as part of a joint effort with Tenum. And it's a it's a piston twin, which I think is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And it's a nine-passenger twin plus bags plus a pilot. So the new model got a FAA certification in August. And we were talking about this a little while ago. It's powered by a pair of full-authority digital engine control FADEC managed like coming engines with a Garmin G1000. So that's kind of that kind of technology has been around for a while. Yeah. So that's good to see on that kind of aircraft. And it seems like a pretty capable aircraft. Now, what do we know about Cape Air? 
Yeah. So Cape Air, if, if you're not aware, the, by the way, if you're listening and you, you know, you're going to stick with Justin later and get into, you know, the whole career aspect, Cape Air is an awesome place, I think, to start your career. This is an outfit that flies the older Cessna 402s. So they've been looking for a new airplane. And the P2012 kind of fits that bill, you know, twin engine, piston, kind of cabin class. I mean, that's uh, that's really what their bread and butter. They fly around, as the name would suggest, Cape Cod and kind of the outer islands there around the northeast. They're also in um, down south now through the Caribbean and uh, I believe a little bit, uh, just a little bit out west. So really cool. They've got a flow through for career seekers to JetBlue. Yeah, that's a great way to get started. It is. It really is. And I think, you know, this is going to be really good for those pilots because, you know, they were flying those, like we said, those older 402s, you know, old panels, old equipment. So these 2012s, you know, they've got the G1000, which is really nice. And then these engines, like you mentioned, they're the Lycoming TEO 540s. Electronic ignition, which is very cool, from the factory. Both sides are electronic ignition. Yeah, that is cool. So there's something you made a note in the release saying that once there's an unleaded fuel, it'll automatically be able to uh, to take that on. And that's probably, they can say that confidently, because of that electronic ignition. That's pretty neat. So it'll compensate for any kind of changes like that with engine timing. And we, did, we neglected to mention that aircraft does sell for $2.6 million. Yeah, which is, I mean, think about that. <laughs> two piston engines, you know, nine passengers, 2.6 million bucks. It's, I mean, it's, you know, it's the market now. It's just crazy, though, isn't it? Gosh. It is. It is. But this does seem like a pretty interesting people mover. And, uh, you know, if you're up in the northeast area along the New England coast, uh, you'll probably start seeing a lot of these. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you want to talk about money. Take it up let's a notch, Let's talk about Ian. money. <laughs> let's, let's talk about this. So this was, um, I think, you know, people were talking about this as much for the airplane as for the reveal. The G700 from Gulfstream. And, man, if you are into airplane posters on your wall and just looking at, air, you know, these machines as sort of art, this thing, oh, this is just phenomenal. This is a, an incredible machine. The G700 comes in. I mean, let's talk about the price right off the bat. Seventy. $75 million. I'll order two. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> $75 so. million. And can we say this on a podcast, Ian? It's a sexy airplane. It is. Okay. It absolutely is. Beautiful. I just said it. There it is. Yep. This thing, it's stretched. It's going to be their biggest one. You know, just for some perspective, this has 20 cabin windows, right? Wow, Tennis 20. Side. That's a huge aircraft. It is huge. There, It's going to fly 7,500 nautical miles. That's a long-range airplane. Yep, yep. And go Mach 0.925. That's a fast airplane. Yep, really incredible thing. And at $75 million, it's a pricey airplane, Ian. Yeah, yep, that's right. These engines, they're the Rolls-Royce. They've got 18,000 pounds of thrust each. Amazing. Flies to 51,000 feet. That's something that really struck me as a, a figure I really haven't heard much about. 51,000 feet. Now, if I'm on a Southwest or Delta jet, we're like in the mid-30s, right? Yeah. Altitude-wise. Yeah, 51,000 feet. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. So this was a big, you know, big reveal, all the sort of the flash and the pomp and the circumstance of the days of yore, you know. And this is a great story, by the way, for uh, with Tom Horn. You got to go online and check it out. And he kind of talks about what it was like to be there. And he worked for Bombardier, you know. I did not know that. That was so cool. The way that he wove that in the story, I mean, hats off to, to Tom Horn. This was really neat. And it was a real rivalry between these two companies. Mm -hmm. When one company introduced a model, the other one was soon to follow with even bigger and better, faster and yeah. longer, sleeker. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So these are cool. I, I can't wait to see what they, you know, uh, the development of this G700. Really amazing airplane. And, uh, you know, Gulfstream is sort of synonymous with luxury. So uh, it is. Yeah. Be interesting to see this come out. You know what, Ian, before we leave Gulfstream, one thing that we have talked about a little bit on the podcast from time to time, they do a lot of community outreach in uh, their you know, headquarters in Savannah, Georgia. They have outposts at other places around the U.S. And they do a lot of community outreach and they get some local high school students to intern for them. And they teach them about crafting and, and aerodynamics as well. So it's kind of an interesting way to give back to the community. Yeah. Yeah. They're big there in Savannah. So no, that's a, that's a, that's a very good point. By the way, if you ever fly there, it is, you know, you, you just look over and see all the jets on the ramp and you think, I mean, there's billions of dollars worth of hardware there in Savannah. So it's, it's a neat place to go. All right, so hey, let's move from seventy-five million down to you know eleven hundred bucks, fourteen hundred bucks, but put to use in a very cool way. This is the NTSB. You mentioned it using drones, and now they, the Jim Moore's got a good story about this. They documented 
the B-17 crash that we've talked about with a drone and the way they use this, it really is fascinating. I think that this might be the wave of the future for NTSB investigators. A couple of things stood out to me, Ian. The first thing is that uh, Mike Bauer, a systems analyst and aerospace engineer and a member of the NTSB team, basically before anyone touches the scene, they treat it more or less like a crime scene. Before anyone touches it, he's up there with a drone, he's flying it, and, and he's also a pilot, by the way, a certificated private pilot. So he's out there documenting the flight path of the aircraft and other details on the ground. And in this particular instance, this is one of the first times that they used basically a straight down view. Not the oblique view from the side, but, but basically straight up and down. And that helped collect enough images for an accurate 3D model of the wreckage. And that helps investigators piece things together, whereas they might in the past have missed an important detail. This helps them understand uh, a little bit more of the scene. I think we're going to see a lot more of this. Yeah, that is cool. You know, I, I just speaking personally here, it's like, you know, photography from drones. I mean, I get excited about that just from a, you know, a magazine standpoint or a media standpoint. But beyond that, you know, from a real sort of go to work with first responders and stuff, it doesn't jazz me too much. But when they start to use it for things beyond that, like you said, with the 3D mapping and heat mapping and all that kind of stuff, that's, that's I, I think, where it starts to get really interesting. That's right. And so this might be an interesting career choice for people who are thinking about entering aviation. If they have a little bit of a visual background and a little bit of a technological background, maybe a little bit of engineering, it might be a real interesting thing to pursue. Yeah, that's that's a good point, especially, you know, drones. It's kind of a wide open world right now. And I mean, if you've got an idea for how to apply something, it's like you can sort of make your case and start your company that way. So that's that's a great point. So on this particular event here, this is a terrible tragedy. Of course, we're still waiting to hear, and it will be months before we know exactly what happened with the B-17 that crashed in Connecticut. But I thought it was interesting that these NTSB investigators built a system, in where you could put it in a backpack, a laptop, your drone, other devices. They use spray paint to uh, mark different sites. And it's all in like a Go backpack. And so that's kind of what, photojournalists do. Uh, it's not uncommon in the uh, in photojournalism world to you know, have a, a get-up-and-go bag, and, and you're out the door, and you got everything you need. Yeah, very interesting. That's cool. So, we'll, yeah, we'll come back to that, because I think they'll, they'll continue, like you said, to expand out on those capabilities. So, interesting stuff. Hey, let's move on. Signature, you know, we've, we've talked about these, uh, the FBO fees now for a couple of years. Uh, this has been an issue for AOPA. Uh, lots of comments in about sort of egregious fees, and we've worked with different operators and the FAA to try and make things more fair, more transparent. And now Signature has come on saying that uh, they're on board and, and they've made a tool called the Trip Estimator that is their stab at, at making things a little more transparent for pilots. And they're going to have this available to folks pretty much after the first of the year, Ian. We got a little bit of an advanced look at it. And right off the bat, we noticed, you and I noticed a couple of things. It does look like it's geared a little bit more towards heavier iron yeah. than the folks that, that I fly with and mm -hmm. Piper Super Cubs and Cessna 172s <laughs> and whatnot. Um, but I, I do laud them for making a stab at this. And it is something that AOPA has been very, very vociferous about for the last uh, year or so. And basically, transparency, just tell us how much it's going to cost to land. Now, is there a landing fee? How much is it? You know, what can I do to avoid the landing fee? Can I get gas? So I think that this is an interesting tool, and I look forward to them rolling it out. Yeah. So there are a couple comments about it, you know, from folks who have used it. They they weren't happy with the fact that you have to sign up for their loyalty program. So, you know, it's basically like if you want the information prepared to be marketed to, you know, otherwise, obviously, you can call and you don't have to give them a whole lot of info. You just say you're single engine. How much is it going to be? But to avoid that step, I mean, we are in the... In the modern times, you shouldn't have to call to get this basic information anymore. Yeah. It should be available online, an app-based format, or some kind of easier way to get at it. Yeah. So that was one complaint. The other is that, you know, like you said, based on kind of big iron, I mean, there there is going to be, supposedly, kind of a full range of, of prices for every operator. But I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, it's what people are actually charged is kind of a mystery with Signature, as with many of the FBOs, because if you're a fleet operator or you're buying a lot of gas, you're not paying the list prices. No, you're not. In fact, right there on their value site, if you join the Signature, what a kind of club it would be, but if you basically sign up and you get on Signature's list, it's like there's a big uh, hotkey right there that says, 
are you buying in bulk? So that's one clue that this might be, you know, more towards the heavier iron than for smaller folks like me. However, then you and I poked around a little bit uh, with this ahead of time. And, you know, AOPA already has the airport directory online. And uh, regular podcast listeners know that I am a user of that. And it does have drop downs uh, in the directory portal that lists the various fees at some of these FBOs including Signature, as well as others. And, you know, you and I poked around a little bit, and, Ian, we found out that some places didn't charge anything, and then some places charged a lot, and then a lot of them waived uh, the fees for fuel purchase. And then there were different categories of fees. At one airport we looked at, there were 10 different categories. Another one we looked at, there were 57 different categories for fees. <laughs> Yeah. And in the case of Signature, I know many times they said, oh, well, here's the fee, but call us, you know, so it's like, it's still not a perfect system. And I know they, they were a little hesitant to, to give out some of that information initially. So it will be interesting to see how much detail are people really going to be able to get out of this when it goes live. Yeah, but I think it's a step in the right direction, maybe not quite far enough. But uh, at least with the trip estimator, if we sign up, we'll have a little bit better idea of what could be coming. All right, David. Hey, real quick, let's talk about this is the, kind of the last piece of news from MBAA. Let's talk about uh, the market, the BizJet market. You know, Honeywell always puts out his forecast at MBAA, and there's some others. Um, you know, Flying wrote about JetNet IQ. So, how how are things looking over the next decade? Do we think? Well, it looks like uh, as as Colin Stagnita wrote, there's a wisp of, wisp of caution that appears to be on the horizon there. But really, I think what that points to is some of the global economy right now that we're seeing different political events and we're seeing different uh, economic events that are kind of steering us in a direction or away from uh, a direction. Don't forget, there's still unrest in England for Brexit. There's still some issues in Germany with the economy, and European operators are facing slow economic growth. And that has, in the past, that's been one of the things that's driven some of the um, some of the BizJet market trends. So as we're looking around, we need to keep these things in mind. One thing that stood out to me, Ian, were that a lot of folks kind of liked the jet they already have in their hangar, so they're satisfied with what they've got. So for new jets, that doesn't bode well for new business jets. Yeah, I agree. Or maybe they're not seeing enough in the development of new jets that, that you know, gets them excited or feels like it gives them a whole lot of new capability. Because I don't know if, you know, you remember after the last recession, there was a lot of talk about sort of right-sizing, you know, that people went from the jet they wanted or could have to the jet that made sense for them. And it seems like maybe, you know, that caution is going to continue to play out. So I think overall, you know, Honeywell saying flat, which makes sense. You know, they were worried about the U.S. economy. And, and if you look at the broader economic media, you know, I think that's people are starting to kind of sound that alarm a little bit. So not terribly surprising. And, but I have heard that even if there is a recession, that people aren't as worried as they were last time about such a big tank that we had. Yeah, because it was built largely on, well, there are a couple of things that came into play then. If I'm going to go back and try to remember some of my, some of my economic history Number one, uh, there was a big housing bubble that burst, and that affected people who had invested in, in other things, and it affected the money in their pocket. But uh, I think at the same time, we were looking at different parts of the aviation industry that was still bolstering up the aviation industry. There was still growth, in, or actually there was not as much growth in other segments of the aviation industry, and it affected us a lot more. I think that we had more to lose then than we do now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we haven't grown as much as we had previous to that. So no, that's that's exactly right. So we'll, we'll you know, these are always interesting to see kind of how they vary from year to year, you know, how useful they are from, you know, in a 10 year look forward. I suppose that's debatable. But it is interesting to see like last year's look forward versus this year's and kind of, you know, what some of those changes are. Yeah. And then uh, as we mentioned a minute ago with the with the Gulfstream G700, you know, operators are continuing to take a look at those larger cabin aircraft classes and the longer range aircraft. So, you know, I, I guess Gulfstream really is on to something. If that's where the appetite is, they're concentrating a little bit more on that. Maybe sell a couple of less aircraft, but they're more pricey to begin with. Yeah, that's a good point. Hey, we wanted to save this for last. A bit of a surprise. Maybe you've heard about it now or read about it. The Garmin Autoland system. Now, this is an incredible, incredible announcement. AOPA's flown it among some others. You know, Garmin's been working on this for a long time, and they've been kind of holding the announcement until certification. 
this is a phenomenal just I, I mean I, I can't give enough sort of superlatives to this thing uh, basically a system that is meant for kind of the lighter GA end compared to you know when you're talking more like sort of cat 3 bizjet stuff but lighter GA end that is a completely autonomous one button push take you from cruise to runway complete autoland system Ian, you know a lot more about this than I do, but uh, it's been one of the tightest and closely kept secrets that I've witnessed since I've been here at AOPA. And yeah, so one touch of a button will allow an aircraft to land, and it also takes in consideration things like the wind, the power that the engine has available to it, or the lack of power that the engine has available to it, how far away you are from a runway. And your passengers are taken into huge consideration because this system is designed for an incapacitated pilot, uh, basically for a passenger to take over and punch a button and get the aircraft on the ground while you're still. The system itself talks to ATC and other pilots, and it's just fascinating. It kind of walks a passenger through the entire process, and they don't have to really do anything but make sure things are going as planned. They have a visual of exactly what's going on. In fact, the PFD, the multifunction and primary function displays are stripped of a lot of the extraneous information and just display the basics that would get you down. Yeah, you you know, you make a great point about the passenger standpoint because what this thing does, you, you know, we've said it, but you push one button, thing will take you from wherever you are to a landing. It'll it'll select the airport, know what the weather is, it'll go fly and approach. It uh, it automatically sequences the radios to make announcements to ATC lands you on the center line, stops the airplane on the center line. And, you know, that would be enough, I think. That would make the system pretty phenomenal. But what they did in testing this thing is, you know, they, they obviously you've got the engineering aspect, which which all that plays into. It was really kind of cool. You know, Garmin obviously has some non-pilots who work there. And so they would put non-pilots in the sim and say, okay, try this. And they'd run it through the simulation. And they found that really what want, what non-pilots wanted was more information. And so on the screens, the system is going to say, hey, you're in emergency auto land mode. It's active. You don't have to do anything. This is what's going to happen next. And it actually reassures the passenger the whole time what's happening. Yeah, and I think that kind of awareness for a passenger, because already if, if I'm in this kind of a situation as a passenger, I'm already freaking out. You yeah. know, I don't need to be panic-stricken any anymore. And so this kind of puts the passenger at ease, and uh, it kind of walks you through. Now, if you want to call and make a radio call, it has a graphic display on the screens that allow you to press the screen and talk like a walkie-talkie and then um, and communicate with other folks that will be helping out. But I find it fascinating that the aircraft itself will land at an airport on a runway and even in a crosswind. Yes. And, you know, like kick out the crosswind at the last minute. Amazing. And land, land near the center line and roll to a stop. You know, and at the same time, emergency officials have been called. And what What's cool to me, Ian, I'm, as you can tell, I'm excited about this too, is that there seems to be a real interesting buy-in with the FAA yes. and with air traffic controllers and folks to understand that this is an emergency. And it's 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 like, how did Garmin partner with the FAA to bring about this kind of new uh, phenomena, you know, to land this airplane? Like, how is it squawking and talking and, and do how do air traffic controllers know that this is an emergency and treat it as such? I, th- I find that very interesting. Yeah, it is really fascinating. And, you know, because, again, there, there are, you know, the technology seems to be almost one of the easier things. You know, it's like they had all the pieces in place. They just need to kind of wrap them together. I mean, that's easy for me to say. I didn't go. I wasn't in the development. But you're right. I mean, to go so above and beyond to put this thing into the system to alert ATC, to put, you know, to put auto sort of uh, announcements on the CTAF and to inform passengers. I mean, all that stuff was really above and beyond and, and just fascinating. And, you know, we said it's a button push, but there are other ways it will automatically activate, including, you know, depressurizations. If something's happening where like the pilot hasn't interacted with the cockpit in a while, it'll, the cockpit will come up and be like, Hey, are you still there? Hello. It's kind of like some of the cars that I've driven recently, some of the rental cars, you know, where it kind of nudges you back into the lane. Yes. If you don't provide an input, this is the same deal. If you don't provide an input to the side stick or the yoke, basically the airplane is waking you up and saying, hey, Dave T., 
are you still flying me? Yeah, man. Are you are you still around? Are you still with us? And if and if you're not, it'll activate. And um, and you can of course just like any autopilot deactivate it. But then if another kind of really cool thing that they thought through, if a passenger, you know, let's say you have a passenger, they're freaking out. Uh, understandably, they deactivate the system. And now it's like, oh God, now what? Well, the, the, the screen will come on and say, oh no, did you mean to do that? And you know, let me help you. This is how you reactivate me. It's just phenomenal. Similarly, if a passenger accidentally presses a button to activate the system, mm-hmm. it's an easy way to deactivate the system as well. And you did, you brought up a really valid point. That's something that I kind of want to touch on. Uh, you know, if you're in a high flying aircraft, and don't forget that we haven't mentioned yet that these that this system is going to be available in the first quarter of 2020 in a Piper M600 SLS or the Cirrus Vision uh, Jet, the SF50 Vision Jet. So you're at a higher altitude, and you touched on it a little bit, Ian, but I think it's worth repeating that the system also, the Autoland system, brings the aircraft down to a a level, an atmospheric level, where if you were incapacitated due to hypoxia, that you would be, you would start to revive. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I should have, you, you had a good correction there. It's not yet certified. I, I misspoke there. It will be on the M600, and then they're working with the Cirrus folks for the Cirrus jet. And, and, you know, the thing is that, so these airplanes, one of the reasons they started with these is, you know, they've got in, in the Piper, I think it will add auto throttle if I'm right about that. Cirrus, I think, already had it. You know, they've got electronic braking, so it's like the airplane can kind of do it all. Garmin says there's no reason this thing can't come down to a 172 in the future. Yeah, and a G1000 panel, it's part of their autonomy system. It's a family of uh, automated flight technologies. Yeah, you're right. They could um, make the technology come down to that level of a 172 or go up a little bit to other aircraft that have, you know, similar automated functions as well as, you know, with an autopilot. So there's a lot of versatility there. And I think obviously we're just scratching the surface of this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I was looking on Facebook today when it was announced. People are saying, oh, well, you know, quote unquote pilots will be having these emergencies, you know, all all the time just to activate this thing. It does squawk 7700, puts out an emergency message. So it's like if you're pushing this because you feel like making an approach uh, when you shouldn't be or something like that, it's like you're going to have to do some explaining. So it is meant as an emergency system. Well, I, I hear you, Ian, but I'd rather explain to the FAA or to the air traffic controllers what happened than if I then if I was in a true emergency and didn't yeah, you know, use the technology that I had available to me. I'd I would just rather have the explanation. L- listen, uh, there've been a couple high-profile accidents through the years in aircraft that would have benefited from something like this. Like you might not remember, but Payne Stewart, he was a world-class golfer, and and I believe in a Learjet, and it basically was incapacitated. We didn't know what happened to him. The airplane basically just went on and on and on. And there were there have been a couple of other high-profile accidents like this yeah. as well. TBM recently. Right, yep. right. Yep. So, yeah, no, it's, it absolutely will save lives. It's fascinating. Can't wait to see it in action and people, you know, and, and, and for that exact reason because it will save lives. So very cool stuff. So, hey, uh, I think we've gabbed on long enough. Let's bring Justin on. You guys talked about aviation careers uh, amongst some other things, so excited to hear what he has to say. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Justin Seams, a pilot-to-pilot HQ host and an ATP pilot. Uh, you got your air transport pilot certificate. You've got about 4,000 hours, I understand. So, Justin, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in aviation. Yeah, so aviation, it's kind of funny because I come from an aviation family, but I never even considered aviation for my career or never even thought about flying until I was, say, 20 or 21 I played sports my whole life, and I always wanted to be a professional athlete. I always either wanted to play baseball, basketball, or football, and I took football to the highest level that I could. I played uh, Division One college football, and I quickly realized there that the NFL was just not going to work out, and I needed a, a plan B, and my plan B happened to be flying, and I'm so glad I found it, and it's kind of funny because, like I said earlier, I came from an aviation family, and usually... People in an aviation family, they fly when they're younger, but my dad never really pushed it on me. He never even really mentioned it, and I really respect him for that because I feel like aviation is the type of career that you have to kind of find on your own to have a, a very successful career and not kind of be forced into it, if that makes sense. 
Sure, sure, it does. And my uh, my dad actually had a Cherokee six. So when I was a young person, he he started out with an air coupe, then he got a Cherokee one eighty. So did your dad have an airplane or access to an airplane when you were younger? No. So I never flew in a small plane. We would he flies for American Airlines now. He flew for Piedmont, kind of rode all the mergers up to what American Airlines is now. But I never was in a small plane, a Cessna 172 or anything of that, kind of similar to that, until I was 20 years old and I took my first flight. So you have a, a career aviator in your family, and you kind of followed his footsteps, it sounds like, but you never really got into general aviation flying at, as a youngster. No, not at all. Yeah, I, um, I didn't get into general. Like I said, I never even went to a small airport. It never even crossed my mind one time the whole time I was growing up. So when you were in sports and you realized that you had to transition into something that was going to be a little bit more stable, why did you pick aviation? <laughs> I don't like school. I never liked school. It was never something that I was good at or never something that I even wanted to kind of put my effort into. It was just kind of a big thing my whole life was sports, like I said, and I love sports and I do everything I could to get into sports. But School was just not that. I would not dedicate any time to it. And I realized that that wasn't until I found aviation where I was like, hey, I actually like this and I like studying this and I like learning this. And that kind of helped me realize that I think this might be the career choice for me because nothing else stuck with me. When I took, like I said, when I took business classes, math classes, it was just kind of like really boring for me and I didn't want to go through with it anymore. And luckily I found aviation. Well, you sure did. And Justin, now what's, what state did you grow up in? I grew up in North Carolina. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, I see your uh, your area code or your phone. I was going to ask you about that. So you must have been uh, maybe a NASCAR fan, I'm just guessing. <laughs> I was. When I was growing up, probably NASCAR's heyday, like in the 2000s. I, I love NASCAR. I would go to two races every single year, and my favorite driver was Casey Kane, if anyone even knows who that is anymore. <laughs> well, no, that's uh, I actually do because I cover a little NASCAR when I'm not working here at AOPA, but... I was going to say that a lot of those drivers uh, back in the day, they were also pilots. That's how they got around. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, the up at uh, Concord, if you know where that is, JQY, I believe it is. The I do, yeah. There is, there's an unbelievable corporate aviation world up there, and just all the, the NASCAR hangars and just the amount of planes that are there, it's really cool to see. So there's a, you're saying there's an unbelievable uh, corporate aviation world at JQY. That's on the north side of Charlotte at Concord, and that is kind of a, a neat area. And a lot of those drivers and the team still do use general aviation to get around. Absolutely, yeah. I've, I've met a couple pilots that fly for NASCAR, and they say it's a very interesting job. Uh, they don't get to go to the races because, as you can imagine, they need to rest up because most of the drivers need have places to go as soon as the race is over. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a need in that community to have aviation and have access to a plane, whether it's a fractional company or whether it's their own plane. It's definitely something that they use and utilize very often. Fractional aviation, kind of uh, what I do is I fly for a fractional company, and it's essentially on-demand service Well, that we have. We have different accounts. They range all the way up from the highest accounts where within four hours we'll have a plane ready for you to the lowest accounts where I think it's like a couple of days and we can have a plane ready for you to go wherever you want in the entire world. We have airplanes that range from um, the Citation Latitude, which I fly all the way down to a Phenom, and then we go all the way up to a Global and uh, Gulf Streams. Well, I've been in a, a Embraer Phenom, and that's quite a nice airplane. I've been in a smaller one, but that is pretty interesting. Now, how did you choose corporate aviation over, say, for instance, commercial aviation like your dad? Yeah, that's a great question. It's um, <laughs> So when I was doing my flight training, I've always wanted to be an airline pilot. It's all I really thought about. I was just kind of like, all right. I'm going to be get all my training done. I'll be a flight instructor, and then I will go to be a regional captain, a regional pilot, regional captain, and then work my way up and flow into the airlines. But as I started doing my training, I realized that I didn't want to be an instructor. It was just something I never envisioned myself doing once I was training. I just couldn't imagine myself doing stalls and spins and landings eight hours a day or for however long it was. So I went to the aerial survey side, and I just really fell in love with general aviation, I fell in love with FBOs. I fell in love with kind of just that community, you know, like getting your own fuel, talking to people in the FBO, just kind of the smells that are in there. And I think that it just really kind of hooked me and realized that general aviation is a really great career path for everyone. Well, that's an interesting way to get involved in that. I'm going to tell our Hangar Talk listeners that you we've got you here via Skype today, Justin seems, but you were telling me that you really fell in love with GA. Now what what now you were talking about the the smell of it, 
the feel of it, walking into an FBO, that kind of thing. What really turns you on to GA? Uh, just the the dynamics of it, just what you can do with it. I love the fact that I can take off in a 30,000-pound a jet and fly to Aspen, or I could fly to Atlanta, or I could fly to JFK, or we go to the islands. You know, I kind of love the uncontrolled chaos, which not everyone does. It, it's something that is not for everyone. It's a lot of changes, and our day changes 10, 20 times, possibly sometimes in a day, and I've just kind of grown to love it. And I don't know if I would like the monotony of going from kind of point A to point B every single day or every single week. So you like the variety of it. You could be in the islands one day. You said Atlanta another day. You could probably be on the West Coast as well. So what, what's one of uh, your favorite destinations as a corporate pilot, Justin? Yeah, so number one would have to be Bermuda. I just think Bermuda is so cool. It's like an hour and a half flight from the East Coast or an hour flight from the East Coast, and it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful location. The weather is not always sometimes the best, and surprisingly, it's an island, but it does get kind of cold in the wintertime. So it's a, it's an interesting destination that offers a lot, and it's just it's a lot of fun. But on the opposite side of that, I really love going to uh, Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. I think those mountain airports are probably some of the coolest airports in the States. I would agree with you on that, but I'm I'm guessing that they are also very challenging to land in, and especially when you have weather moving in in the wintertime in the Rocky Mountains, so that's a little bit challenging. Do you have to do any special preparation for something like that? Uh, it's more for our company. We have a whole dispatch team, and we have all the forms and stuff on our iPad where where we have mountain mountainous airports, and we can read up on them so we're aware of all the challenges. But every single airport that we land at for my company is very kind of gone through rigorous, not necessarily training, but they've thought out every single possible outcome, and they go through a lot of checks and balances to make sure the plane can handle any situation in there. And at some airports, we have higher minimums where we, like at Aspen, we don't ever go to the final approach fix. If we don't have the airport in sight at a certain a certain time or certain distance, then we have to go around. So we take a lot of precautions and we make sure that we are prepared 100% for every single airport that we go to. All right, that sounds good. It sounds like you have a really good support team that's looking out for you in the flight ops department and the dispatch department. But you know what? Let's talk a little bit about career aviation. And, and really, those are two fields that we don't often give a lot of weight to, flight ops and dispatch. What are some other fields that young aviators might pursue if they're interested in aviation? Yeah, so I have a lot of friends that are kind of, I've kind of had that question a couple of times. And uh, dispatch is a good one. Like you said, um, they have flight management. So if you get you can go to college, you get an aviation management degree and kind of work your way up into management. There's also FBO side of things. So you can work uh, management there. You could work the front desk. You could work line service where if you're looking to become a pilot and kind of up and coming in the general aviation world, that's probably one of the best things you can do during your training because you get to create these relationships. You get to talk to pilots. You get to see what they like, what they don't like. And you can either get the connections to get a right seat job in a King Air or a seat job in a Pilatus or just a, some cool plane that will help you build your career. But on top of that, you also have companies where they sell fractional ownership. So you can get involved in sales, you can get involved in IT and tech. So it's been kind of mind blowing to me kind of how, how many jobs there are to get an aviation company up and going. Gotcha. We were just talking a little bit about some other options for young people. And I know that IT is a really big one that you just mentioned a second ago for folks who are interested in aviation, but may, they might not want to be a pilot or a mechanic. You know, we've seen so many advances in software and in in-cockpit situational awareness. I think that would be a great spot for folks who are really computer savvy. Absolutely. Yeah. Our company develops their own apps. So we have our own company specific apps where we have a, a dedicated IT team that just software, that just codes that just make sure that these apps that support us and support our mission and support our owners. And we just make sure, I think, I don't know how many people we have there, but it's a really big IT program and it's, it's a huge part of our job. That sounds like a good option for folks. Well, look, let's, since we're talking a little bit about IT and a little bit about computers and a little bit about the social world of being an aviator, let's lead over to how you established the Pilot to Pilot HQ podcast. Certainly you don't have that much time to host a podcast, uh, being a fellow podcaster, I know there's a lot of work that goes into it. You have to do a lot of show notes and things like that and find your guests. But how did you come up with that idea for Pilot to Pilot HQ? It's a funny story because I can't take any credit for coming up with the idea. It is all my wife. 
So when I was flying freight, I flew freight in a PC-12 for two years, and we had a really good group of friends, a good group of guys, and we would play video games all the time in our time off, and it just got to the point where it kind of consumed our off days, where we would pay for eight hours or nine hours, and we got very good, but my wife was kind of like, what are you doing with your life? Like, why are you playing video games so much? Why don't you try to, to give back to the aviation community and try to create a platform where you have an opportunity to give back? And I kind of thought about it and I was like, no, like, I don't want to do that. Like, it's never going to work. It'll never take off. And she was like, why don't you do a podcast? And I was like, no one wants to hear me talk for an hour, an hour and a half every single week to, to talk about aviation. But I did it eventually. I think I took, took her about six months to convince me to do it. And once I started doing it, it just kind of every single episode built on itself. And I started learning and kind of got a workflow going to help. Because as you know, it is kind of a, a monotonous thing and you can edit for a while and it just doesn't seem perfect. But I kind of learned that quality and quantity kind of a ratio to make sure I could produce such a, 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 or a podcast every single week. Well, you got to give your wife a little a little bit of props here um, on the Hanger Top podcast via Skype. What is her name? Christina. Her name is Christina and give her mad props. She is the reason the Pilot the Pilot podcast is here and the reason I didn't create like some kind of video game Twitch streaming <laughs> instead. So it's all Christina. She's in uh, med school right now. She's uh, tr- she's in school to be a doctor. So she's she's out there studying. But yeah, she's the reason for the podcast. Well, that's a great story. I didn't know that. I'm very impressed. Well, tell Christina that we really appreciate it because that's how our paths crossed. Now, you've had about 60 some odd podcast so far at Pilot to Pilot HQ, and you've got quite a few different personalities. I was going back through uh, some of your shows. Uh, Captain Moonbeam is one of them. Yeah. And uh, then we were just talking about Jesse McClintock on uh, as a wing swap. I just tapped into that a little bit to listen a little, a little bit about that program. Now, who are some of your more memorable guests, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a hard question to answer because I I love every single episode that I have produced in its own way. I would have to say one of my favorites is Logan Floods. It was one of the earlier ones that I did. And Logan Flood was flying in Nebraska and he had a plane crash where he was the only one to survive. They were flying. I don't remember exactly the plane that he was in, but the, the pilot that was flying and he was the pilot training in the right seat. He died in the plane crash, but Logan survived. He suffered a ton of burns and he had a, he lost, I think he lost some of his ears, lost his hand, but he kind of just tells the story of the accident and tells how the recovery process, he talks about how he was able to move on from it. And he got a job with Republic. He went from right seat to left seat as a captain. And now he just got hired at Southwest. So it's just, that's probably my favorite story that I've ever been able to tell. And I think it's one of the more unique ones that I was able to tell because it was more of, um, kind of like a a dramatic story of what he did, what he went through, and how he overcame all the the difficulties that he was faced with. So he actually explained that to you on the podcast, and then you saw how he moved on with his life, and it sounds like that he was a a bit of an inspiration. We'll have to look up Logan Flood, but golly, I didn't know about that. I really appreciate you bringing it to the forefront. Yeah, it's a, it's a very powerful episode, and I'm going to re-release it soon, so uh, just so people have more... Can, can see it because it's a story that I think everyone should hear. That sounds good. We'll stay we'll stay tuned to get that re-released. But listen, why don't you tell our people here on uh, Hangar Talk, tell our people what the website is to find you and how they could grab you other than your website. I know you're out on several different platforms. Yeah, so you can, uh, I'm most busy and I, I pay more attention to Instagram. So Instagram is at pilot the pilot. And I'm starting to get a little Twitter following going too, and that's also Pilot to Pilot. But the website is pilottopilothq.com, and that is kind of just where it's a it's a quick landing page where you can find out where our Patreon is. You can find out how to leave a review and see the most recent podcasts that I've done. All right, so uh, people could find you at pilottopilothq.com, also on Instagram and Twitter. Now, I think your show is also, I mean, I know it's definitely on Spotify, so uh, folks who have a Spotify account, they could find you there. I'm assuming you guys are also on iTunes as well. Yeah, we are on all the, the major platforms that you can be on for a podcast, and it's just under the name Pilot to Pilot. So now, what does the HQ stand for? PilotToPilotHQ.com. So I was looking up to buy uh, the domain name, and Pilot to Pilot is purchased by someone else, and they wanted like $20,000 for the website. <laughs> and there was no way I was going to pay $20,000 for the name pilottopilot.com. 
And my wife and I were just thinking, like, we went through, all right, what could the website be? Pilot to Pilot Headquarters, Pilot to Pilot Aviation, Pilot to Pilot Podcast. And we just kind of can just kind of brainstormed and realized that Pilot to Pilot HQ, where it's the headquarters for all the Pilot to Pilot. So not just a podcast, you know, in the future won't just limit us to a podcast and we can post everything there. That's a good story, too. I like the background of that. Now, you've had this active since 2017. Now, did you have to gear up for this technically and also, you know, socially and a little bit of experience and how to do it? Or you just just call someone up on the phone and start recording? <laughs> I just dove in, man. I I, uh, I got a microphone for Christmas. I got a Blue Yeti USB microphone, which I've used for every single podcast and I kind of just plugged it in. The, the microphone was $130 and I Skype and you had to buy a recording platform there. So I think all in, I was $150 in and I was able to start this podcast and I haven't really upgraded since then. So $150 for that. And since then, I bought some more microphones that I can use on the road and more software for editing and stuff. But yeah, it's kind of just, it's a really, it's crazy because it's so easy to start a podcast. What I'll say is the biggest thing is just to continue. You're not going to get a lot of, a lot of followers, a lot of listens, a lot of downloads right away. You have to build your audience. You got to put in the time and you're not going to be good at first. My first couple of episodes were awful. <laughs> I wanted to, to edit everything to where it came out, where there was no us, there was no breaths, there was no kind of kind of uh, spaces in between or silence. So it was really choppy. And it didn't take until someone left me review. It was like, hey, what is this guy doing? Like, you need to, to stop, stop focusing on trying to make it perfect and just really realize that it's a flow of conversation. So I used that and I kind of just kept building on episode after episode after episode to make it what it is now. So really, it's just about t- having folks tell their stories and be natural in a natural environment. Hopefully, like you and I are doing right now, we're just having a little bit of a chat. Yeah, exactly. I don't I don't plan anything. I like to to be surprised just like the listeners are, and I treat every single podcast like it's just us talking. So, I might repeat a couple of the same things about myself because I don't know what the person on the other end knows. I don't know if they've listened to the podcast forever, and just for conversation's sake, I will sometimes I'll say the same things, but it's just so I can keep that conversation going, and I'd like to have a genuine reaction to what they say, so that's why I don't ever send out like a feeler or have them tell me any, any information about themselves. I just kind of see where the conversation goes from there so it's just spontaneous spur of the moment i kind of like that i like the surprises myself yeah absolutely it's a, it keeps things interesting <laughs> now uh, i know you've got a, a pretty heavy duty uh, schedule for your day job are you planning on going to any fly-ins like can folks out in the field other pilots can they run into you at other places and maybe chat you up uh it's tough i um i work a very weird schedule so i work a um I work about 20 days a month for my flying job, and that's a lot. It doesn't leave much time for me to to be able to go to fly-ins and still be able to have kind of the personal life that I want to have in Chicago where we live. But I've, I've had out on the road when I'm flying, I kind of post on Instagram and post on my stories and they get a kind of general idea of where I am. And I've had people meet up with me there, talk to me there, or even on overnights, reach out and be like, hey, I'll buy you a cheeseburger or something if we can come hang out. So there's definitely some unique opportunities. I don't necessarily get to go to all the fly-ins like I would want to, but I'm hoping that might change sometime in the future. Well, I hope I run into you in person, Justin Seams. I'll tell you what, you've been a great guest for us, but anything, any other final thoughts that you have to leave with us about folks who might want to follow your footsteps either in the podcasting world or in the corporate aviation world. Yeah, I mean, I think this this advice can go for both and I've kind of touched on it earlier. It's uh it's all about the work you put in. You know, I like to preach and I like to tell people that aviation or podcasting or whatever you want to do, consider yourself the CEO of your life, of your career, of kind of your plans. No one's going to feel bad for you if you don't make it. You know, you have to put in the work and put in the time that for the results that you want later in your life and later in your career. And just remember that that doesn't happen instantaneous. It's always a process. You know, we talk about how I have almost 17,000 followers on Instagram, which to some people is a lot, to some people it's not, and have just about almost 400,000 total downloads. But that didn't happen overnight. That didn't happen the next day or a week or two weeks or a month or even a year. It took me a while to kind of build and get noticed and just continually work and put in the work. And like I said, just be the CEO and go out and just promote myself and just be who I am and be genuine about it. That's a that's great advice, Justin. Be the CEO of your life, whether it's in aviation or really anything else. And we do hope a lot of aviators listen to us on Hangar Talking and also listen to you at pilottopilothq.com. 
Uh, any final thoughts? If not, we want to say thank you very much for meeting with us via Skype. And uh, I'd surely hope that our paths cross as a fellow podcaster, but as an aviator too. And I'm just a little bit old to get going in the corporate aviation world myself. I wish I did it when I was much younger, but marrying these two things, the technology and aviation, I think that's just a wonderful idea for a lot of young folks to pursue. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a great time to be a pilot. So it's a great time for anyone to start training. You know, it's pilots are very much needed and it's very much a pilot market. And with Instagram and social media, you have the opportunity to either further your brand or you can also there's also the dangerous side to where you can hurt your brand. So be careful what you're posting on Instagram. Be careful what you're posting on social media. And it's not all about memes and all about being funny because companies do follow that stuff. That is fantastic advice, Justin. You are right. Be mature about it, but be your own CEO and always have an eye to the future. Keep a good name, as my grandfather used to tell me. Yeah. Don't ever burn a bridge. You never know when you're going to need that help. Absolutely. Well, Justin Seams, we really appreciate you joining us on Hangar Talk via Skype today. I really hope that our paths do cross uh, at AirVenture or somewhere down the road. You've been a great sport, and you've got a super busy schedule. We just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun, and it's been an honor. Yeah, so David, it's, it's really great. I mean, you know, there's so much focus about the airlines these days. Really great to hear from a corporate pilot and get his advice and his perspective on what it's like flying in that world. And Justin also mentioned, Ian, as you know, that he's a pilot, he's a corporate pilot, but he had an interest in this kind of podcasting technology and the social media. And it, it was a way to give back to the aviation community. So as we look ahead and as he talks to these different people, you know, movers and shakers in the industry, he's really given back a little bit to other folks who want to get started in aviation. Yeah, that's great. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. And we're on iTunes at the Sporties Takeoff app and on Spotify. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly. <laughs>